At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors. This is Invest Talk. Today is Friday, February 16th, 2024. My name is Luke Guerrero, and I want to welcome you here today as we head into the long weekend. For those of you who have Monday off, good time to relax and rest with your families and loved ones. But before we do that, we have some work to do. Because today, as with every day, we want to leave this hour a better and more informed investor than we were when we got here. And to that end, I have some interesting topics that we will talk about throughout this show. But more than anything, I'm here for you. You are what makes this hour special. Your questions drive the conversation. Now, we'll run down those show topics that I mentioned in a bit. And of course, we'll highlight the market today. But before we do that, let's start off by answering our first caller question that came in earlier. Hey, uh, I think water will be a bigger issue in the next years or decades. So I'm thinking to buy this stock for a long-term investment, XYL. Can I have your thoughts? Thank you so much. Bye. XYL is Xylem, Inc., which engages in the design manufacture and application of engineered technologies for the water industry through their business segments, their water infrastructure, applied water measurement and control solutions. The water infrastructure segment focuses on transportation, treatment. They also do some work in commercial, residential, and industrial end markets. Taking a look at this company, it has a dividend of 1.16%, which is pretty modest. It's also got little debt, very little debt and solid profitability, and increasing cash flows over the past year. All positive signs. One thing that's giving me a little bit of pause is it's somewhat overvalued. At this. It's price to earnings. It's trading at a 29.8 relative to its average of about 30, but still, that's a little high. This is a growth name. This is a name that's been growing pretty consistently, which is good, but because of that, it's only... 10 basis points off its 52-week high versus the subsector average, which is significantly lower. So when I look at this, I see a good company fundamentally that is at a price that is a little bit too expensive for me. So I do like this company. They've been buying back shares over the past couple of years, which is good. But I think you should probably wait until the price pairs back a little bit and it Thanks for the call. And we got a lot of ground to cover in the first next 45 minutes or so. Here's some of what I have planned for us, time permitting. My focus point concerns the topic, how to use real estate in your portfolio. We'll go over what you need to know about the advantages and risks of investing in real estate. Keep in mind that real estate is a broad asset class. 
includes both public and private investments, as well as both equity and debt security. For this topic, we'll talk about volatility in real estate investing, some real estate investment strategies, and some real estate investment opportunities. Also, should we have some time, we're going to talk a little bit about hedge funds and how they've been operating within the cocoa markets of all places. Then, should we have time, we'll talk a little bit about Amazon and how it's joining Trader Joe's and SpaceX in a lawsuit that is declaring the National Labor Relations Board as unconstitutional. And lastly, private equity. A big pension manager, rather the head of one of the largest pensions in the world, is telling private equity that they should share more wealth with workers. What effect that could have on the overall market will be interesting to watch. Since it's Friday, I'll share brief excerpts from KPP's newest premium newsletter that's coming up around the halfway point of this podcast. We also have some caller voice bank questions ready to play, including CVS and one about commodities. Now let's talk about the market performance today. U.S. equities finished lower in Friday trading, just off worse levels. Small caps underperformed today, though they're still outpacing large caps by more than 150 basis points of the week. Treasuries were weaker with the curve flattening. The dollar was up almost 1% while gold ended up half a percent up and WTI crude finished up over 1% after copy. Overall, I'd say stocks were under a bit of pressure today, cementing weekly declines for both the S&P and Nasdaq. January's PPI injected an additional note of caution after coming in hotter than expected on the heels of CPI on Tuesday, with a focus on higher service prices. January housing starts and permits also came in weaker than forecasted, which caused language to change coming out of the Fed, labeling January's economic data as being both messy and not providing enough confidence to cut rates in the near term. Despite hotter CPI and PPI print, the broader disinflation theme seems intact thanks to, in part, positive Q4 earnings. Yet those same hot readings triggered another hawkish repricing of Fed pivot expectations. Swaps are now pricing in only 85 basis points of rate cuts this year versus 150 basis points two weeks ago, something that is not surprising to any of us over here at InvestTalk. This also puts some renewed scrutiny on markets' track record of premature policy pivots during recent tightening cycles. Despite the trend of hotter data, Q1 growth expectations are still coming down. Atlanta Fed's GDP now puts growth expectations at 2.9% versus 3.4% where it was weaker, with a drag from weaker than expected January retail sales. Looking ahead to next week, the market will be closed on Monday in observance of President's Day. Wednesday, we'll be waiting and watching with the release of the Fed meeting minutes. And Thursday will bring some data related to both PMI and existing home sales. We're going to go to a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. If you're listening via our live stream or on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, call now at 888-988. Invest Talk callers make each podcast unique. I was calling about Intel 
if it's worth holding on to or should I sell it? Their questions are curious. Hello, I had saved up around $80,000 and I was wondering what I should do to make it grow. Careful. Oh, I'm just wondering, is this a value trap? Because it looks like it's gone down quite a bit. Concerned. Uh, it's taken quite the tumble today. I've been trying to get out of this position for a while. I think I waited too long. And clever. This seem to be situated in some areas of expanding population. And Justin Klein, Steve Peasley, and now Luke Guerrero are always ready with their unbiased answers. And this is, it looks like a classic example of chasing yield. Don't chase the yield. Next 12 months price to earnings is around 30. I just don't see it at this price. Don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. InvestTalk is here to help. And when you download the free InvestTalk podcasts, don't forget to rate and review. The phone lines are open, 888-99-CHART. My focus point today concerns this topic, how to use real estate in your portfolio. We'll go over what you need to know about the advantages and risks of investing in real estate. Keep in mind, real estate is pretty broad. It means a lot of things. Now, real estate stands out as a multifaceted asset, bridging both public and private investments along with equity and debt securities. It's often celebrated for its capacity to boost income-focused returns and enhance portfolio diversification. Beyond the familiar terrain of residential ownership, real estate investment can manifest itself into a broad spectrum of options with various real estate investment strategies, including private equity and commercial properties, real estate investment opportunities through REITs, and mortgage-backed securities offering a myriad of ways to engage with real estate beyond simply home. Now, REITs or real estate investment trusts, present the most, I would say, accessible and definitely the most liquid form of real estate investment for most individuals, eliminating the complexities of directly having to deal with property management, which I've said before, nobody wants to do in their old age. With assets totaling approximately $1.9 trillion globally, $1.9 trillion as of 2022, REITs represent a significant portion of the nearly $10 trillion global professionally managed real estate market. The substantial market underscores the potential value of including real estate in a diversified investment portfolio, adopting a market-based approach to asset allocation. Now, investing in real estate, particularly through REITs, offers the advantages of diversification, and the potential for superior performance in certain market conditions, given the volatility in real estate investment. Historically, real estate has exhibited relatively low correlations with the broad U.S. equity market. At one point in the early 2000s, I believe it had a correlation of around 0.1, suggesting its utility in achieving better risk-adjusted returns within a diversified portfolio. Remember, with correlation, you want assets that are lower than one, the lower the better. Negative numbers mean negative correlation. They move differently than the assets you already have. However, it's crucial to recognize that real estate investments also carry their own sets of risk, including market cyclicality and, frankly, susceptibility to economic downturn. 
think 2008, the massive drawdown in real estate valuation. Now, for those considering REITs, which you should, there are multiple pathways to investment, including purchasing individual REITs or even investing in some mutual funds. So if you look at the sector breakdown of the Russell indices, Russell 3000, they're going to have REITs included in them. A lot of funds have REITs as a sector allocator. Now, tax considerations are also vital as REITs must distribute at least 90% of their income as dividends, which impacts the tax treatment of received dividends. Recent tax law changes have made REITs slightly more attractive for taxable accounts because taxpayers can now deduct up to 20% of REIT income under certain conditions. Now, real estate and REITs in particular, in my opinion, can play a crucial role in a well-rounded investment portfolio because, I said it yesterday, investing is about seeking returns, but it's also about managing risks. And different market conditions are going to provide you with different investment outcomes depending on the asset. And given the historical correlation, REITs can lead to a more diversified portfolio. But it's also important to consider the specific risks. Again, the largest quarterly drawdown over the past 20 years in real estate valuations was around 30%. You can't ignore the potential volatility in real estate. But for investors who are seeking, again, diversification or income streams, they have a lot of options. There are different types of REITs. There's tower REITs. There's prison REITs. Mortgage REITs. Gambling REITs. Commercial REITs. Office space. And all of those are going to have different investment experience because they have different drivers of return. Now is not necessarily a good time to be in the commercial office space. The pandemic changed a lot. Income in gambling REITs are going to be a lot more sticky, as are storage REITs. People tend to buy and rent storage facilities and hold on to them because it's a pain to get out of them. So there's a lot of options beyond just going and buying or owning a share of a physical building that you have to maintain or pay somebody to maintain. And investing in REITs, making them a portion of your portfolio, can give you that exposure and diversification without sacrificing on liquidity. Now, this is Invest Talk. Now, with more than 57 million downloads, here comes another listener question from our 24 hour voice bank, 888 Hello, this is Carlos. My question was about Holly, H L L Y. They make uh, performance products for automobiles, uh, mostly gas-powered ones. I know the future is headed towards electric, but this company has been around for a long time. I was wondering what you think about it. Let me know. Thank you. Bye-bye. The question is about Holly, Inc., H-L-L-Y, engages in the manufacture and design automotive aftermarket products. And after the break, we will talk about how electric vehicles and the shift in the green transition might affect this business and if it's a good investment. Until then, 
I'm Luke Guerrero, and my phone lines are open at 888-99. Let's take a quick look at your financial to-do list. At the top, make that phone call to the Invest Talk Anytime listener line. 888-99-CHART. So before the break, we were talking about HLLY, Holly Inc. And what it does is it manufactures and designs aftermarket automotive products. And now the question from Carlos was centered around, how do I think this company will be affected given the push for EVs? And I'm of the opinion that within the next five years, the full EV push will be pared back a little bit. Because electric vehicles can be beneficial, but situationally. One of the biggest examples of this is Hertz Rent-A-Car. Learned the hard way that people who are renting a car don't want an electric vehicle because they have to sit and they have to charge it. So until the battery technology is there and energy storage is there, I just don't think a full EV fleet is feasible. Now, for this company specifically, I don't think any of that matters. And that's because in 2022, they lost money. In 2023, they barely made money. They're set to make less this year and next year than they did last year. They have $681 million in debt on a $616 million market cap company. Their interest rate coverage ratio, how much they make before interest and taxes, divided by what their interest expense are, is 1.43. They are very highly leveraged, and they have very little margin for error. So for HLLY, Holly Inc., I'm going to have to give it a thumbs down. Now, on Fridays, we generally make time to fit in a quick rundown of key benchmark numbers. So let's get into that now. The two-year treasury yield was at 4.66%. For perspective, last week, it was at 4.48%. Three weeks ago, 4.359, and five weeks ago, 4.161. 112 weeks ago, seems like forever ago, especially given what's happened in the past two years, it was at 0.64%, quite the change. 10-year yield is at 4.29% versus last week at 4.17. A couple months ago, 4.63, and 109 weeks ago, 1.762%. Gold was priced at $2,014 per ounce. Not much lower than last week when it was 2025 and significantly higher than 14 weeks ago when it was 1935 and 84 weeks ago when it was 1809. Silver today was at 2343 per ounce. Last week it was at 22.6 per ounce. And believe it or not, 80 weeks ago, 18.64 per ounce. Oil was selling for $78.71 per barrel, down a little bit from last week when it was 79.57, but up from 11 weeks ago when it was 74.3, significantly down, however, from 93 weeks ago at $97. The national average for a gallon of regular gasoline is $3.28 per gallon, up a little bit from last week at $3.16. Three weeks ago, it was 310. We don't like it going in this direction. 
and 105 weeks ago is at 357. Out here in California, it was averaging 464 a gallon. For comparison, in Tennessee today, gas was averaging 299 per gallon. That's $1.65 less per gallon than gas in California. Why does that happen? Well, that's actually because there's a different type of gasoline in California, so they cut it off from the national supply. Now let's pivot back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for a call that came in earlier on 888-99-CHART. Hi, this is Dan from New York. I've been uh, listening to Invest Talk for over a decade, and I want to thank Steve, Justin, and now Luke for educating us on and giving us the understanding and confidence to invest. Recently, I called about the direction of growth versus value. Thank you, Justin, very much for helping me with understanding that. I greatly appreciate it. And Luke, you did an amazing job on your solo appearance on Invest Talk. I particularly appreciate you sharing the PE ratio in relation to the overall market and your, and your breadth of knowledge for that matter on the market in general. I do have a question on CVS. I know, Justin, you have said in the past, uh, be stingy with where you park your capital. I just feel that I, I would be better off parking um, my capital that is in CVS and investing in, in a pl another place. I don't have much in there in, in percentage speaking uh, of my overall portfolio, but I just uh, like to see if maybe I should just sell CVS and at what level I should sell it at uh, where there's resistance and park my capital someplace else. Thank you very much for listening to you guys on the podcast. Well, first, thanks for the kind words. And hopefully we can help you out a little bit with this answer. And at its core, if you feel as though any individual holding in your portfolio can be better replaced by another one, and you have a good fundamental reason for doing it, not emotional, do it. I like CVS in general. I think the company is very undervalued. I think they have a broadly diversified asset base. I think their debt's a little bit out of hand, but it's not crazy out of hand. And I think they're going to get better. But it may not be right for you. And that's okay. Monday, February 19th is a market holiday. So we have put together a fresh compilation show. A best of caller questions podcast. Look for that to be posted on investtalk.com and other platforms. Remember, the InvestTalk downloads are free, so don't forget to tell your friends and your family. And now, my phone lines are open, so give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, 
AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. Every investor is working to build a secure financial future. How they get there and when they get there, that depends on many variables. The more you learn about how the market works, the better your chances. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. I have a question about commodities. You've mentioned um, potentially set for gains when the Fed do eventually pivot. I was wondering um, if I have a small position in Barrick Gold, G-O-L-D, and whether I should add to this position or potentially look at AEM, Agnico Eagle Mines, or WPM, Wheaton Precious Metals, um, particularly Wheaton as a more midstream play. Or would you see investing in the pure commodities themselves, such as gold or silver, as a better, if maybe somewhat more higher risk play? Um, I look forward to your opinion and um, we'll listen to the show keenly. So the question is pertaining to investing in gold. And so the reason why when there's a Fed pivot, gold can do well is because when interest rates are high, people tend to want to store their money in something that's going to give them that automatic yield. If you can get 5%, you're going to just get the 5% because you don't have to deal with the volatility of gold. And now it's that volatility of investing in the commodity itself that makes me a little hesitant to suggest that you own directly gold or silver. Because investing in gold miners, although it has a fixed cost, such as equipment, infrastructure, administrative expenses, they're constants, regardless of gold production levels and gold prices. So when gold prices surge, gold mining companies see a disproportionate increase in profitability because the revenues are rising and most of their costs are remaining unchanged. Now, another benefit of gold miners investing in them is that during a downturn in gold prices, unlike physical gold, which can be more volatile, gold producers can adjust their spending to maintain higher levels of profitability. So you can have a smoother investment experience without dealing with the volatility of the underlying commodity. And I have no issues with, with GOLD, bare gold. Um, AUM, it's a fine company. We own it for clients. So I would say if you're looking to add to your gold exposure, you probably want to go the route of gold miners rather than gold itself. Now, the KPP Premium Newsletter was finished today and will be distributed to subscribers tomorrow morning. But we have a preview for you here. In the market conditions section, we explained that stocks were mixed, but mostly lower, heading for the end of the day Friday, following a big week of economic data that fueled the anticipation that the Federal Reserve might delay interest rates cuts due to ongoing inflation concerns. And in the end, stocks closed lower ahead of the long holiday weekend. 
This activity was set against a backdrop of January's producer price index rising to 0.3%, exceeding the expected 0.1% increase. Additionally, core PPI, which excludes food and energy, surged by 0.5%, surpassing the forecast of a 0.1% rise. The subsequent rise in treasury yields, with the 10-year surpassing 4.3% and the two-year climbing above 4.7%, reflected the market's adjustment to expectations of sustained higher interest rates. Overall, the U.S. economy showed signs of slowing down in January, following a period of significant growth at the end of the previous year. Retail sales saw a notable decrease of 0.8% from December and industrial production edged down by 0.1%, both outcomes falling short of economists' forecasts. Data suggests that the housing sector began 2024 on a weaker note with both housing starts and permits for new construction declining. Housing starts plummeted by 14.8%, far exceeding the expected flat reading, and permits decreased by 1.5% in line with estimates. We're officially past the halfway mark of February, and financial markets and the broader U.S. economy are navigating through a period of uncertainty marked by inflation concerns and speculative Federal Reserve policy decisions. There's a lot more commentary and detail in the newsletter. In the stock ideas section, we highlighted a leading provider of payroll, human capital management, and insurance solutions servicing small and mid-sized clients, primarily in the U.S. The company, established in 1979, services over 740,000 clients and pays over 1 in 12 U.S. private sector workers. The company is highly exposed to swings in economic conditions and labor markets, so we need to watch out for trends of a significantly weakening economy. However, the company has low debt, strong free cash flows, two things that we like. We would be more attractive to a price level in the low hundreds. And we also looked at a retailer of casual apparel, footwear, and accessories. The company retails medium to better priced casual apparel, footwear, and accessories for fashion-conscious young men and women. Fundamentally, the company is strong with free cash flows of 5.69 a share, low debt, and pays a 3.5% dividend yield. The current P.E. ratio is a modest 9. The stock recently sold off and now looks to be finding support. Now, we're not going to name these names here, but we do name them in the newsletter. I've given you a sample teaser of the latest KPP Premium newsletter. Subscribers will receive the full edition via email each Saturday. And they always get the portfolio and consumer watch sections where they can learn more. So you can learn more as well and subscribe anytime at investtalk.com. Now I want to pivot to a conversation about private equity. Now Chris Ailman, the outgoing investment chief at CalSTRS, which is the California State Teachers Retirement System, which is one of the world's leading pension funds. They have about $330 billion under management, has called for private equity firms to distribute more of their wealth to the workers of the companies they acquire. This call for a more equitable share of the profits comes in the wake of private equity industry's rapid expansion, where dealmakers have significantly prospered, with leading figures in firms such as Blackstone, KKR, and Apollo seeing over $40 billion increase in the value of their shares recently. Now, Aylman, who has been instrumental in this union, 
and their engagement with private equity for two decades emphasize the importance of not only generating returns for retirees, including teachers, but also ensuring that the employees of the invested companies and their communities benefit from these investments. The stance is particularly poignant against the backdrop of growing scrutiny over private equity sector's impact on the American corporate scene and worker-related scandals. Now, the industry, employing around 12 million people in the U.S., has faced criticism, including instances of child labor violations in companies owned by private equity giants like Blackstone. And despite these challenges, some private equity managers have initiated steps to allow employees, their portfolio companies, to share in profits, signaling, potentially, shift towards more inclusive wealth distribution practices. KKR, for instance, one of the world's largest, has shared billions in equity with over 60,000 employees from its various portfolio companies since 2011, and pledged to extend equity sharing programs to all employees in its North American private equity fund deals. Further, over two dozen bio groups have committed to Ownership Works, which is a plan that aims to create over $20 billion in worker wealth by 2030. Now, although Ailman is headed for retirement, it'll be interesting to see if his successor calls for the same practice. Calsters will remain one of the world's largest pensions funds and therefore has an outsized influence and a voice that can't be ignored by the industry. Now, in a time when PE firms are saddling their portfolio companies with debt in order to pay out dividends due to the lack of liquidity, I certainly didn't anticipate that anyone this influential would shift the focus back on workers. But in a time where labor has been making gains, this could be a welcome outcome and change for hundreds of thousands of employees across the U.S. Now let's swing back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier on 888-99-CHART. Hey, Steve or Justin. Uh, love the show. Appreciate what you guys do daily for the public. Calling in today to ask about diversifying the long-term portfolio to include an index fund with international stocks. So I'm really curious your take on diversifying one's portfolio into international stocks at this point and whether a fund like VXUS, Victor Xylophone, Uniform Sam, uh, an index fund that tracks non-U.S. companies, is worth investing into. So thank you so much uh, for listening and looking forward to hearing your answer on the show. Take care. So VXUS, the Vanguard Total International Stock ETF, offers a broad, inclusive portfolio of global stocks outside the U.S. and covers small caps in market-like proportion. So it's a very small portion of their portfolio. It looks like they got about 7% in small caps, 68% give or take in large caps, and 20% in mid caps. Now, generally, I am for diversifying your portfolio in a way that also incorporates a slice of international stocks. As we talked about yesterday, and we'll probably talk about more in the future, the U.S. is diverging from the rest of the world in terms of growth, inflation, a lot of factors. And so that could arguably hurt international returns in the near term. However, I still think it is beneficial to invest in international stocks, in emerging market stocks, in U.S. stocks, in proportion to the representation in the global market. 
Now, as far as this fund goes, it's, it's fine. Vanguard has been doing this for a long time. They're an excellent manager. They completely changed how index funds were delivered to investors. And like any Vanguard fund, it's cheap. Seven basis points for broad-based international exposure. So should you invest in international stocks? Yes, you should. Is this a good fund to do it in? Yeah, I have no problems with this fund. Thanks for the call. Now, before we head to another break, we are going to touch on Amazon. And how Amazon is joining in the legal battle against the U.S. National Labor Relations Board and aligning itself with companies like SpaceX and Trader Joe's. Now, these companies are making the argument in a recent filing that the NLRB has a structure that undermines the constitutional rights of a jury trial, particularly criticizing the protections around the agency's administrative judges and the appointment process of its board members. This legal stance emerges amid ongoing NLRB investigations into Amazon, following allegations the companies interfered with its workers' rights to organize, highlighted by a notable instance where employees at a Staten Island warehouse voted to unionize two years ago. Amazon denies any wrongdoing, despite facing over 250 complaints of labor violations nationwide. And this contention extends beyond Amazon. SpaceX is challenging the NLRB in court following accusations of retaliatory firings linked to employee criticism of CEO Elon Musk. Similarly, Trader Joe's and individual Starbucks employees have lodged complaints against the board's operational framework, suggesting a growing trend of corporate pushback against federal labor oversight. Now, the increasing disputes raise the prospect of the U.S. Supreme Court intervening, given its recent skepticism towards the legitimacy of in-house proceedings by federal agencies. Think the SEC. Legal experts, including one who represents unions in cases against Amazon and Trader Joe's, express concerns that these challenges could undermine collective bargaining efforts, potentially encouraging more companies to resist negotiations with unions under the belief that the NLRB's authority might be curtailed by the courts. This is, in my opinion, a very notable escalation by large companies following a year that was historic for unions and organized labor. It'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting case to watch because over the past couple years, decisions by the court have, without a doubt, eroded away part of the administrative state. It's also interesting because the argument here is not that the NLRB itself is unconstitutional, but their practices are. That by pulling it in within the organization and ruling without a jury, they're depriving these companies of guaranteed rights to a fair trial. So over the next year, especially given this administration's stance on powerful, powerful companies, it'll be interesting to see how the court rules. Now we're moving quickly through the first quarter, February, halfway over. We've been telling you for a while now that we're in a new market environment, so serious investors need to be able to adjust their thinking and strategies to fit the times. Let me remind you here on Invest Talk and at KPP, we operate with a philosophy of independent thinking and shared success. We offer unbiased guidance, parallel investing, where we invest alongside our clients, and investment strategies that we carefully implement ourselves. I encourage you to take 
Advantage of our offer to provide a free portfolio review assessment via telephone, Skype, or GoToMeeting. If that interests you, send us a message through investtalk.com. Now, this is Invest Talk. Your calls and questions are an important part of the podcast. And our work continues in 30 seconds. So hang on. This is InvestTalk. Please tell your friends and family members that they can download our weekday podcast for free anytime at investtalk.com or iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And when you download and listen, please be sure to rate our podcasts. Our anytime listener line is open, 888-99-CHART. Hey, Steve and Justin, this is Nathan. I had a question for you guys about the concept of staying in the market. You know, anytime you take profits on stock or mutual funds, or maybe you roll over an IRA or a 401k into an IRA where funds are traded from one mutual fund to another, you go to cash for a minute, and then you are reinvested back in the market. It's like every time you do that, you're just getting back into the market again. So I was wondering if you could touch on that, your philosophy and your ideas of staying in the market and what that means. Yeah, that's a great question. So generally, staying in the market means staying exposed to the potential returns that the equity market brings. And so historically, over time, equities have outperformed cash, they've outperformed treasuries. Not every year, but as you widen out that investment horizon, there is a higher and higher probability of outperformance. So if you're rebalancing, one strategy is get some exposure to a money market fund if you want yield. Maybe short-term treasuries if you want yield. You're still invested in the market. You're not sitting in cash. You're getting something and your money is working. Maybe you want equity exposure in the interim before you find something to, to turn into. Maybe you buy an S&P 500 ETF so that you're exposed to, the, to U.S. large caps. Or maybe the Russell 3000 so you're exposed to the whole U.S. market. So staying invested doesn't guarantee you have positive returns, what it will do is empirically, it has been shown, increase the likelihood, the likelihood that you have a positive investment experience. Thanks for the call. Now, before we head off into the long weekend that I hope is, is restful for everybody, I want to talk a little bit about hedge funds. Now, these days, hedge funds have their hands in just about everything. So I didn't expect, or maybe I should have expected, that they also have their hands in the cocoa market, where they've been engaging in massive bets that have intensified a surge in cocoa prices. Something that was already happening due to poor harvests in West Africa with an $8.7 billion rager on the rise of cocoa prices. Hedge funds have contributed to driving the price to unprecedented highs. London cocoa reached a record 4,757 pound per ton. 
New York futures hit a $5,888 per ton. That's a lot of cocoa. This movement marks the largest bet in the cocoa market in dollar terms, heavily influenced by speculative trading rather than fundamental supply and demand dynamics. So the role of these hedge funds, especially those who use algorithmic trading, has been kind of pivotal, if you think about it, in terms of the cocoa prices rally. They've taken what has already been a price spike and driven it even higher and even faster. And it's been pretty profitable for these funds in 2024. Now, the speculative activity is not the root cause of the price surge. That's the poor harvests in West Africa. But they've amplified the volatility, which has complicated the situation not just for processors who are struggling to secure enough supply to meet the demand of the manufacturers, but also the manufacturers themselves. Think your Mondelez, your Hershey's of the world. So the futures markets also don't directly benefit cocoa growers in Ghana and the Ivory Coast, the world's leading cocoa producers, because the government has pricing mechanisms in these countries, which mean today's market prices only reflect in farmers' incomes in the upcoming season. So there's a disconnect between market price and what they're receiving. It, in my opinion, underscores the complexity of not just the cocoa market, but commodities generally. So even if you're not explicitly invested in cocoa, moves such as this can affect the profitability of firms who create products that utilize cocoa, putting upward pressure on food prices in a time when inflation seems to be a little bit more stubborn than some people thought. I'm Luke Guerrero, and this completes another episode of Invest Talk. We thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family members about our free podcast downloads. Get yours anytime, even on holidays, at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please be sure to review and rate us on iTunes. This Monday is a market holiday, so rest up. We have a podcast that we've put together. It's a fresh compilation, a best of caller questions. Look for that to be posted on investtalk.com and other platforms. As always, independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Enjoy the holiday. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.